0: This is Mornings with Cindy on 980 CKNW.
1: Lots of changes that BC is undergoing since uh, midnight, so about six hours ago. We've just entered a three week. Uh, circuit breaker, what the officials call to get the numbers of COVID-19 cases under control. We've heard about what that involves, you know, places like Whistler shut down. Uh, we're talking about, you know, shutting down indoor dining and also changes to masks in BC schools. It's not just the Surrey School District that is seeing this now. As of yesterday, we know that the mask mandate is for all K-12, so 4 through 12 Absolutely mandatory K through grade three, highly recommended, strongly recommended that kids wear masks. So joining us now to talk more about this new framework is Renee Willock, who's the president of the West Vancouver Teachers Association. Renee, thank you very much for being here.
2: Uh, Good morning, Simi. Good to be
1: here. What did you think when you heard this yesterday?
2: Well, this is good news. It's not great news because so far the messaging has been really vague and contradictory. I know what I'm reading in the papers, but I also know what's coming across my computer screen. And we are actually still waiting for clear communication from the Ministry of Education.
1: Okay, where is the disconnect then? What do you mean?
2: Well, yesterday afternoon, we heard Dr. Bonnie Henry announce a stronger mask policy. But she was using words like support and encourage, which always makes us a little bit nervous. That doesn't sound like mandatory.
1: Right. So you're saying you want it to be absolutely black and white, that this is required. It needs to be really, really clear. So what did you find out then? Did you manage to get that clarified? Um,
2: The BCTF had been in touch with the Minister of Education, Whiteside, um, prior to the news conference yesterday, and was assured that it was exactly as, as you've described it. It would be like the Surrey mandate, that masks would be mandatory for grades 4 to 12 even when students are in the classroom, even when they're working at their desks.
1: And does that and start today?
2: We are we are waiting to hear. I'm hoping to to get something in writing. There is nothing new on the ministry website.
1: Hm. So, Renee, it still sounds like there's quite a bit of confusion about this then.
2: There is a lot of confusion. I'm I'm hopeful that this is going to be sorted out in the next few hours. I'm going from here to the school board office to have a conversation, and hopefully we have um, some policy in hand because my inbox is filling up from teachers who say, what does this look like this morning? What does this look like in my grade three, four combined class?
1: Okay, so is this direction from the ministry that you need or from your school district?
2: Now, some school districts have gone ahead and sent out instructions prior to having something in writing from the ministry. Uh, Mine has not yet. So I'm waiting to have that conversation this morning.
1: Okay, so it's because, like, I was thinking about the Surrey situation, right, where the school district has been very proactive. What has your school district been like? Our
2: school district has been in really good communication with me and with teachers, but they are definitely waiting to take direction from the Ministry of Education and from the Health Authority.
1: Okay, so then Renee, very specifically, what what do you think teachers around the province need to hear today? In what form? What should it look like? What do they need?
2: So we need an order from the Health Authority to say that masks are mandatory grades 4 through 12, and it's a stronger math policy than we had in our high schools prior to spring break, that it is even when you're in the classroom, because students are sitting shoulder-to-shoulder when they're working, often face-to-face and shoulder-to-shoulder around tables, and that it is strongly encouraged for um, grades K to 3. And teachers absolutely understand that masks don't replace any of the other layers, that we still have the hand-washing routines, we're still encouraging students to keep their distance but we also know that distancing is impossible in a busy, crowded classroom.
1: So do teachers feel like this morning they have the tools to be able to say, this is what we're going to do, you have to wear a mask?
2: I think that teachers are feeling very confused this morning because we are, we are still, at least in West Vancouver, we are waiting to hear from, from our school district who is waiting to hear from the Ministry of Education. So we are in a holding pattern here at 6 a.m. and hoping to have a bit more direction before 9 a.m.
1: Right. So I guess for people who are not in the system, then, Renee, it might be confusing for them to say, so what are you waiting for? You're waiting for, like, just a, a one line saying, yes, this is mandatory. Do you need the official rule before you actually enact this? Do you need to see it in writing?
2: One line saying, yes, this is mandatory, would absolutely do. Absolutely do.
1: Hmm. Okay, what's it been like for you as a teacher in the classroom? How, how have the students been?
2: So I will be honest with you, I am not in the classroom this year. I am president of the Teachers Union, so I am out of the classroom and actually not even able to visit schools because of the COVID regulations. But I have about 500 teachers who I represent, and I hear from them daily about how stressful this year has been, how exhausted everyone is. The students are exhausted. The teachers are exhausted. It's been emotionally really, really hard.
1: Is like, How hard is it for teachers if they want to like talk to their students about that? Do they find that students are willing to listen if they say, look, we have to be careful?
2: Absolutely. The majority of the students really want to do the right thing. Teachers have been walking a fine line this year, though. In the fall, we weren't even able to mention math. So it's been a gradual shift towards a culture of mask wearing. But the students have been overall really cooperative around this. They, they understand the situation we're in. They want to be safe, and they want to keep each other safe.
1: Okay, so then Renee, for you to feel better, for the teachers in your district to feel better, what you need is just that one line from the Ministry of Education that yes, says please. mandatory. please. Before 9 a.m., that would be amazing. Well, we'll see what, we can, what will happen with that. Let us know. Thanks, Renee. Thanks, Simi. Take care. You I too. It's Renee Willock, who's the president of the West Vancouver Teachers Association, talking about how there is still confusion about the mask mandated.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Listen, do restaurants a favour this week and order some takeout. Maybe you've been going to restaurants, uh, maybe you haven't, but regardless, they need your support this week. In-person dining is banned until April the 19th under those new restrictions that just came into effect. And you've got restaurants with fridges and freezers full of food right now, so there's going to be a huge impact. Joining us is Ian Tossinson, President and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Good morning, Ian.
3: A hey, Sammy, thanks. So thanks for that message. That that's so true. What you just said about you know inventory of food and restaurants needing as much support as we can muster up in three weeks here.
1: Yeah. Were you surprised to hear this yesterday?
3: I su- um yes and no. I mean, you saw the numbers as we all did on Friday, and I sort of thought all weekend it won't be good on Monday. But we then we late night uh, Sunday we had a, an email from Dr. Henry's office saying that they're they've been talking all day Sunday. This is what it looks like. Don't say a word. Uh, we had a briefing with Dr. Henry. Uh, several of us yesterday morning at ten o'clock with Minister Callan, and uh, and you know, and if you listen to Dr. Henry in a private setting, you, you certainly become convinced that this is the right thing to do. How, how hard it is for our industry. Again, um, you know, uh, it's, it's just devastating. But you know, I think we always, as tough as this is, we need to be playing the role in our communities to set the example. To try to get this this variant, which she's very concerned about, from the the Brazilian variant, as she would explain to us, is just a little bit it just travels a bit faster, and so this is it. I, I think we got three weeks to do two things: is to contribute to you know knocking us down in BC as our industry because we're so vast. I mean, there's 190,000 people at work for us, and at the same time, as you say, Simi, is find some creative ways in the next three weeks to use restaurants. I mean. You and I talked a while back about I, maybe it was maybe even uh, New Year's. I, we, you and I were talking about your your family and everybody's going to order something different. Yeah, so it's just like online. <laughs> I mean, you get a prime rib, you get chicken burgers, Asian. You could have whatever you want. I mean, your family could have an absolute riot this weekend, just ordering different types of food and cuisines and exploring different restaurants. So, yeah. you know, it's it's sad, but we, we just, again, we just have to make the best of it.
1: Well, I'm curious though, too, like I know that some restaurateurs have said that, oh, they're shocked, they're surprised and I thought, but are they? Because Ian, anybody who'd been to a restaurant looking around would know that there were rules being broken out there. Like I'm talking people yeah. socializing with people who were not in their household.
3: Yep, yeah, absolutely. And as, as much And I will say this, this industry is, you know, needs to continue to hold its head up. This has got nothing to do with what their operations were. This became more of a demographic issue as who works in our industry. And it's a a massive social platform. And we started to see some, you know, some some transmissions from staff to staff. So that's, I understand that. But um, no, you're right. I mean, we could see it and it became harder for the restaurants to police that and as much as they did a great job of doing that it wasn't ever their responsibility to see who was at a table but you could feel the intensity again and I think it was spring break and I think everybody was feeling vaccinations are coming take the foot off the gas a bit here we can kind of loosen up not so much the restaurants but the people that were out and I was getting calls that saying boy we're getting busier we've been this busy for a year or so Maybe we just hit, we just jumped the gun here a bit too quickly as a society and getting too excited yeah. about getting back to normal.
1: So then, for the next three weeks, uh, we are you know shut down for indoor dining. What can restaurants do then? Is that do they keep staff on and do as much takeout as possible? Do they are we going to see layoffs again?
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, the good thing is was well, not a good thing here, but we at least were prepared this time last year. A lot of restaurants did not even have the platform to do takeout and delivery, so. Um, they will try to do and if it's three weeks and that's why I think we really have to do all we can to get this back online is they'll try to keep their staff as best they can. Um, certainly their, their culinary staff will be there because of takeout and delivery and patios, but you know they're going to have to carry some staff because there's you know we could see some patio weather this weekend maybe so um, that's but but there's, invariably there's going to be a loss. I mean this is going to probably cost the industry five hundred million dollars in three weeks. To, to do mm. this, um, just in so BC, a big hit, just in British Columbia, yeah, and and that's a calculation based off of a fifteen billion dollar industry. If you break it out, simple math by week, and then just take a little bit off the top because business has been down, it's yeah, it's five hundred million bucks. So um, yeah, we're that's gonna, tough. you know, I I think the other thing is for us is that. When these things happen, though, it just knocks the, the confidence out of this sector again. I mean, how many more times can it, can restaurants keep doing this? Does
1: it, does it and, also show uh, you, Ian, that also the the more restaurants stayed uh, varied in what they were doing, perhaps the, the better they'll be able to cope. I mean, I know restaurants that still hadn't allowed indoor dining, right, that were still only doing takeout or takeaway or, you know, delivery, that yeah. kind of thing. So the more you can do seems to be the way to survive this thing.
3: I think we're going to be really battle tested. And, and you're right, the restaurant of the future will be takeout and delivery, it'll be in store dining, and then um, it'll be um, patios. And so you're right, the diversification of the industry, which wasn't there um, when this whole thing started a year ago, is much stronger. And that will serve us down the road for sure.
1: All right, well, we'll let you go. But thanks so much for your time on that this morning, Ian.
3: Thanks, Timmy, for your support. Bye.
1: Take care. That's Ian Tostenson, President and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. So, yes, this is going to be tough. They're talking a lot of losses, but they also understand this has to be done. Interesting that he said there that restaurants, you know, talking amongst themselves had noticed over spring break that they were busy, busier than they had been in more than a year. And so they noticed that there was an uptick, people going out, people eating. And you know what? Not everybody was eating with people from their household. And hence, we are here.
0: This is Mornings with
1: Simi. One of the things we heard from Premier John Horgan yesterday was a very pointed message directed at younger people in this province. Have a listen.
0: The cohort from 20 to 39 are not paying as much attention to these broadcasts and quite frankly, are putting the rest of us in a challenging situation. I'm asking, I'm appealing to young people to curtail your social activity. Uh, The directions will be quite clear from Dr. Henry, but my appeal to you is do not blow this for the rest of us. Do not blow this for your parents and your neighbours and others who have been working really, really hard, making significant sacrifices so we can get good outcomes for everybody.
1: All right, so that is Premier John Horgan yesterday. A lot of people have... Well, take an offense to what he is saying there, that younger people need to heed this message more than others. Uh, let's talk to Green Party leader Sonia Firstno about that. She joins us now. Thanks for being here. i well, happy to be here, Simi. Now, what do you think about that approach?
4: Well, I think that when we're in a, a situation like we're in, uh, this sort of long emergency, this long-standing crisis, that singling out any one group and saying, this is on you, is... You know, both unfair, but I also think unproductive. And I, you know, there's lots of commentary. But we were talking about this yesterday in our um, communications that, it, you know, young that this demographic, 20 to 39, they have the most front-facing jobs, retail, service industry. They've also suffered the greatest number of job losses and the slowest recovery um, for jobs. Uh, I look at my own son; he's in the Conference industry, so he has not worked in his industry since last March. Um, and the, the the realities of for people in a unaffordable housing market is they live with a lot of roommates and uh, maybe they have more than one job, maybe they're taking transit. There's many, many reasons why we would see higher rates of exposure and infection in this demographic, and I don't think it comes down to in any way, uh, you know just one one simple thing of you guys are socializing too much, I think that that's that 's not helpful and it 's not uh, accurate
1: so what do you think has happened that has led us to this point of this three week circuit breaker
4: well actually you know I, I think that there's there 's a need for the leadership to actually be accountable for the situation we're in. We know that we were watching other jurisdictions when the variants hit and what was happening in the UK, and Denmark, Brazil is terrifying. Uh, and there were a lot of voices calling out for quite a while now. And I would go back to Andrew Nikaforik's article back in, I think his article came out in January, Uh, you know, really kind of detailing what's going to happen when the variants hit, and we seem to be there. So I think that there's also a really important part in this for leadership and the people that actually are making decisions for this province to take responsibility and and be accountable for their decisions.
1: Do you think that this kind of three-week circuit breaker is going to work?
4: I hope so. I, You know, but I I think... um, I, I hope so, Simi. I mean,
1: I, I you know, I'm... You sound apprehensive, worried though. At, <laughs> yeah,
4: I'm, I'm apprehensive. Uh, you know, I, I think that we were getting signals from government, from the premier uh, several weeks ago when we knew that there were variants that had gotten here, um, saying, you know, it's, we're almost there, lighten up, have some fun, enjoy. And, and, and I think that people took those signals and uh, relaxed a lot more than uh, we probably should have. And considering that, for example, we just came through spring break and a lot of people packed up and traveled and Dr. Henry yesterday talked about variants, you know, coming from the mainland and and moving back around other parts of the province. Uh, I'm obviously very concerned about where we're headed and uh, what the implications are. The other thing about the Premier's comments about young people, let's remember they are last in line for the vaccine. And, you know, I think that there's also been a lot of conversations in many jurisdictions by many experts at looking at how vaccine distribution can work. And, and you know, I'm definitely not an expert on that, but I, I I wonder if we've, you know, considered where the highest rates of infections are. And I know that there has been some work on that and looking at specific uh, work sites and and areas, but again, being really open and transparent with the public, explaining what's informing your decision-making, sharing the data, sharing disaggregated data on all sorts of fronts would be a, a good, important step to help bring the public along in your decisions.
1: Well, thank you very much for your time this morning. Thank you, Simi. Appreciate that. Sonia Snow is the leader of the B.C. Green Party, talking about needing more accountability from government officials, from the people leading us through this pandemic, saying that there should have been a stricter message weeks ago on this rather than kind of springing it on people now.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, she calls herself a renegade whale biologist. And I think it's fair to say Alexander Morton has seen that as her job for decades now. You have undoubtedly over the years seen her in the news, read her name in the newspaper, just heard of her over and over and over again. Well, now she has released a new book entitled Not On My Watch. She joins us this morning to talk about it. Thanks so much for being here. Good morning. Tell me what made you decide to write the book now and talk about your life and how you got here?
5: Well, I, I thought there needed to be a record of all that went down here around the salmon farming industry and the collapse of wild salmon. It's it's such an extraordinary tale. And as you mentioned, people have heard snippets of it. But um, if we're going to turn the, uh, you know, the coming collapse of these fish around, I think it's really important that people understand this aspect of the story.
1: You tell a very personal story here, too. I love the part where you talked about, as a child, you saw Dr. Jane Goodall on uh, TV. You saw it, and you said, that's it. I, I want to be a scientist like that. Was it really like that for you?
5: It really was. I mean, when I was growing up, there were no women scientists, and certainly, you know, that I knew of other than Madame Curie, and there was none studying animals, which were my passion. I was so interested in animals, and so I thought I was going to have to give that all up. And then I saw Dr. Jane Goodall, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, that's what I want to be." You need to you need to know that 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 position exists before you can even imagine it. And so, yeah, she did that for me.
1: Why whales, though? Why fish? Why salmon?
5: Uh, well, I started with whales because I was interested in communication uh, of some non-human, large-brained species, and so that was basically elephants, primates, or whales and I picked whales, and then I found the perfect place to study them. I was planning to spend my entire life studying them like uh, Goodall did, Uh, but the area I chose in the Broughton Archipelago on the B.C. coast here, uh, salmon farming industry moved in in 1988, which at first I thought they were really wonderful, Uh, but then as the impact started to pile up, the algae blooms, the Atlantic salmon in our the displacement of the whales, and then the sea lice outbreaks, uh, I realized something had to be done. And because I was the only biologist on scene, I switched from studying whales to recording the impact of this industry in hopes that the DFO regulators would kick in. Uh, But they never did.
1: But certainly, when you say public opinion has changed during the time that you have been fighting for this, I would say the B.C. public is pretty educated on this topic.
5: It's true. And there's a lots of groups working on it, um, as well as myself, which have, have helped. But in the end, it's the First Nation governments who have made the real difference. The only places where these farms have been moved off these migration routes uh, is where First Nations in the Broughton and now the Discovery Islands decided that um, they were so concerned about what was going on with wild salmon that they just wanted the farms to get out. Now, the good news for the salmon farming industry is that it can go into tanks. Uh, industry is doing this around the world. Uh, investors are very interested, as is the market, because sustainable seafood is a, it's a really big deal worldwide. People right. don't want to eat the ocean to death.
1: Now, that, I know that's even changed, though, hasn't it, over time, Alexandra? Because I've talked to you over the years, and I remember when we would talk, and we talked about land-based fish farming. And at that time, companies were saying, nope, can't do it, too expensive. And now they're saying, yeah, we want to do this.
5: Yes, except the three operators here (laughs) who all have their head offices in Norway, where Norway is pushing the industry in closed containment simply to save the industry. Because the problem is the longer this thing is in the water, the more virulent their pathogens are becoming. We all got an update on what viruses do when you let them spread. It is not good because you get mutations. And that is what is going on here. The sea lice, the bacteria and the viruses are all becoming more virulent and because they breed in these farms and pour out in such massive levels on the migration routes, young wild salmon just don't have a chance to make it to sea.
1: Where do you think your work has been successful? Like when you look at what you've done, can you point to something and say, there, see, that that made a difference?
5: <laughs> with, with First Nation governments. Um, and, and those are the governments that I work with most closely now because they really want wild salmon. So, for example, in the Broughton Archipelago, Uh, we conducted a 280-day occupation of the farms, and it was mostly First Nations, mostly young First Nations women. And that bumped the issue up to the very top priority for the leadership of those nations. And they went into talks with the provincial government and came out a year later, and those farms are leaving. And so last spring, I got the first look at uh, the Otter River pink salmon as they were going by what used to be a farm site instead of being covered in lice and emaciated and bleeding, they were so beautiful. They were just sparkling silver and blue with these deep black eyes. And uh, they'll be returning this summer. And I'm, I'm hoping to see an increase in their population. So when the farms are removed, the sea lice go down. The other pathogens go down as well. And we hope to see a rebound in the wild salmon. Yeah,
1: you know, what does that tell us that it is possible then, right? That these that this can rebound, that we can see these stocks healthy again? Like do you have hope for that?
5: Absolutely. Yes, I do. And and I think people will be astonished at how the wild salmon respond to this.
1: What have you seen?
5: Well, just the fact that they're getting to see healthy, to me, I mean there's many other things that might impact them. But when I look at the Discovery Islands and the incredible crash of the sockeye there, I mean, only 20 sockeye returned to some of the spawning grounds. Um, And I look at those fish and 99% of them are covered in sea lice levels we know will impact them. I'm incredibly grateful to the Minister of Fisheries because on December 17th, she made an astonishing decision. She made the biggest decision the Canadian government has ever made to protect wild salmon when she decided to stand with the seven First Nations of that region and not allow any more Atlantic salmon to be transferred into that area. That is that is where one-third of all of our wild salmon travel. There never should have been farms there. So this spring I'm going to be there and uh, looking at the condition of fish that are going through the areas of that uh, archipelago that have been cleared of salmon farms. Of course, the company sued the minister, <laughs> and we were in court last week, and we get the decision this week They are trying to reverse the decision so they can put more
1: fish in there. Alexander, what do you want people to take away from your book?
5: This is a work in progress. This is a choose-your-own-ending. We are living the unwritten chapters. And so once people read this and know this, uh, the decision has to be made. What are you going to do about it? I'm hoping that you will support our Minister of Fisheries and the First Nations in the bold moves that they're making to get this industry out of the water so that it can begin its new growth in tanks on land and we can restore our wild salmon runs.
1: Well, listen, thank you so much for joining us to talk about the book today. You bet. Thank you. Appreciate that. That's Alexandra Morton. Her book is called Not On My Watch, How a Renegade Whale Biologist Took On Governments and Industry to Save Wild Salmon.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: When you break down the number of cases and where they are increasing of COVID-19, you know that, okay, Fraser Health, there's a problem there. Uh, Numbers in Vancouver, Coastal Health, also on the rise. Pretty dramatic uptick there. But other health regions, it is not as big of a problem, but they are all close also totally subjected to the new health restrictions that were announced yesterday. So is that the right way to approach this? Well, not every health region is, is happy about this. Joining us is Nicole Clark, the Chair of the Advocacy Committee for the Penticton and Wine Country Chamber of Commerce. Nicole, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. So what did you think then when you heard the news yesterday about these new restrictions?
6: Um, we were really disappointed. Um as far as the BCCDC site, uh, information is that in Penticton, there was one uh, new case last week, and all of our restaurants are now being penalized um, for something that's happening elsewhere in the province.
1: Right. But to be fair, was there not problems last summer, or, you know, in through the fall in the Kelowna and Penticton area, and the rest of the province had to have the same restrictions?
6: Um, we have seen regional restrictions before in the fall. um, We had regional restrictions that went in in Fraser Health and uh, didn't impact the rest of the province. And, you know, I think um, we've all been learning through this year and to compare what was happening last summer to what's happening now uh, is, is not fair.
1: Would would it give people the right impression, though, if they think, okay, well, things are okay in the Penticton area? Are you, are you not concerned with how people might behave?
6: At this moment, I think people are behaving very well here. And um, our, our citizens are anxious to support local business, and our businesses are working very, very hard to... Um, put in place all of the appropriate protocols to keep their employees safe and their customers safe. And we're just not seeing the same kind of spread here.
1: And what, how does this impact wineries, Nicole? I understand that they, they had to inquire about making, how the rules impacted them on this yesterday.
6: Um, I'm not positive about how this has impacted wineries. I know that last summer, the wineries went to a by appointment only tasting model. And many of them have expressed that they would continue doing that going forward just because they were able to provide more personalized service to the people that were coming in to see them. Um, Restaurants are are entirely different. The restaurants have made investments um, across the province, investments in supplies and have scheduled staff, and now we have this brush that has brushed the entire province that is impacting um, businesses and putting them at risk. It's impacting families with employees not certain about what the future holds. It's just a really challenging time and, mm-hmm. I, and I appreciate that it's challenging uh, for the province to manage all this as well
1: have you has there been a lot of tourism in Penticton people coming from out of town like what have you noticed?
6: Uh, certainly, we have um, had increased numbers of people traveling here. It's a beautiful place to travel, um, but we are early in the season at this point. Um, we're not we're not uh, seeing full parking lots in the in the hotels and and that kind of thing. I think I think the regional travel restrictions that have been in place for some time. Uh, certainly people are aware of, and and they're not traveling as much right now.
1: Mm -hmm. So you feel that locally, though, people are following the rules?
6: I do. I absolutely do.
1: Have there been a lot of people dining in, too? Like, how are restaurants doing?
6: Restaurants are doing okay. Um, My husband and I make it a practice to go out at least once a week and support a local restaurant, and uh, they've all, of course... Um, Taken tables out and and really accommodated the um, physical distancing aspect as well as contact tracing and sanitization um, using QR codes instead of menus and that kind of thing. So people are feeling very safe here uh, when it comes to dining out.
1: What would you have preferred to have heard yesterday?
6: That the pandemic was over? (laughs) (laughs)
1: didn't we all right (laughs) don't we all
6: um i i really think that if there are issues in certain regions that they they definitely need to be dealt with um but i i don't believe at this point that we should have a provincial policy in areas where the cases just aren't there
1: All right. Well, we'll see what the health minister says about that. We'll definitely ask that question and put it to him. Uh, Nicole, thank you so much for your time.
6: My pleasure. Thank you for your time.
1: That is Nicole Clark, chair of the advocacy committee with the Penticton and Wine Country Chamber of Commerce. They say in Penticton, things have been well behaved people are fine Uh, they haven't seen rising case counts and so therefore they don't feel like they should um, you know essentially be tarred with the same restrictions that the rest of the province has to go through this is mornings with simi we've got new rules restaurant dining shut down rules around masks in schools concerns about the astrazeneca vaccine so much to talk about with provincial health minister adrian dix who joins us now thank you for being here
0: Hey, good morning, Simi Abba. You're leading
1: in with Abba. Well, that was just for you. That was just for okay. you. Okay, <laughs> thank you. Get the energy level up. Um, I don't. I have to ask you, listening to the press conference yesterday, I, I, when did you know something was going to have to change? Because the messaging that we heard was so different from previous weeks.
0: Well, the, the case counts and the test positivity rate significantly jumped between March 19th and particularly the days just before March 26th. So we went from... Uh, Uh, 6.6% test positivity around March 19th to 9%. And that may not sound like much, but it's actually a fairly dramatic increase. Yesterday, it was 9.68%. What That tells us everywhere in BC, but particularly in Metro Vancouver, we were seeing a significant spike in cases. This is linked as well to variants of concern, which transmit more and may have more serious health effects for people, particularly young people. So yesterday was a day to send a message that we needed a circuit breaker, that the vaccines would work and are working, but we only, uh, only about one in six, one in seven of us have received the vaccine up to now, and uh, we need now to dig in a little bit and to stop transmission in this time, stop people that we love getting sick, and uh, the virus itself, it doesn't argue with us on these questions, it just lives to transmit, and so uh these steps will help I hope reduce transmission in BC
1: What do you say then to the criticism that there was mixed messaging coming from the government and that it was too loose it was it was too too respectful of letting people make that decision for themselves up until yesterday
0: well i i would I would respectfully disagree the these measures uh, let's give you an example a personal example which is typical of just about everyone I know, which is uh, like uh, I haven't seen my mom in a year right. Not in person, obviously, on FaceTime and all these other things. She lives 20-minute drive from me. So the measures we have in place, that you can only socialize with people in your household, are very serious measures. And most, for the most part, people have taken them very seriously. When you're bringing in new measures, such as the one we brought in yesterday, you have to understand the other consequences of that. And so we take that very seriously. And when we saw movement in the levels of test positivity, when Dr. Henry and her team saw that, it was necessary to take action. But you're always reluctant to take action because there's always other effects, and we, we see that as well. I mean, there will be uh, thousands of people not working today who would otherwise be working if these measures hadn't taken. And I think you have to take that pretty seriously.
1: What about the idea of regional restrictions? We were just speaking with the Penticton Chamber of Commerce, and, and they feel they are being unfairly punished by this.
0: Well, I don't think anyone, this, the intent here isn't to punish everyone, anyone, it's to keep people safe. We've seen in interior health where uh, Penticton is significant increases both in August, in July and August, in that period. And then in the post-Christmas period, we saw significant increases after the holidays in interior health this year. We just had a two-week spring break. And uh, that uh, well, well, the rates in interior health in Vancouver Island aren't as, ha- as high as they are in Metro Vancouver, they're going up too. And uh, you want to make these choices and these decisions for a circuit breaker before they start to go up more.
1: What are we doing about the AstraZeneca vaccine?
0: Uh, there was a safety signal from Europe. There are no cases of concern in Canada to date uh, around blood clotting and, and other issues. But there was, uh, with a small number of cases in Europe, there's a safety concern. And I think it's critical to the credibility of any vaccination uh, effort that when there's a safety signal, we respond to that, we investigate it, And then, if necessary, make changes. And that's what's happening here. So people can have confidence that just because it's inconvenient, we'd like to be just proceeding, right? That we're never going to let inconvenience um, stand in the way of people's safety. So over the next uh, couple of days, I expect us to review that. And either we'll change the target groups a little bit uh, for the AstraZeneca or we'll continue on. But uh, that AstraZeneca is an excellent vaccine. It has been used by tens of millions of people in the United Kingdom. You were just referring to that on your news at the bottom of the hour. And so uh, we believe that it will be a key part of our immunization efforts. But when you get a safety signal, you respond to that. And that's what we've done.
1: Are you worried at all, though, that with all these signals coming about the AstraZeneca vaccine, that it may mean that some people don't want it?
0: Well, I think it's the same signal. But remember, uh, this is the same issue that has affected um, regulators in Europe. So in some countries in Europe, they suspended for a few days and then continued on. The AstraZeneca vaccine has had, I think, in general, uh, is performed excellent uh, in an excellent way everywhere, particularly in the United Kingdom. You can see the studies from Scotland and other places that are based on real world experience of millions of people. So it's an effective vaccine. Uh, It may be that some people um, decide to wait for their age cohort for the Pfizer and Moderna. But I think uh, a lot of people want to be vaccinated right now. And this is an excellent vaccine that people should be uh, confident in using. And they should be confident because when we get safety signal, when there's any concern at all, every single one is investigated.
1: So do you feel like we will be back to using AstraZeneca soon?
0: Yes. And uh, we've used about 35,000 doses in B.C., So far, um, as you know, 41,000 of the doses we've received have an expiry date. That's April 4th. We expect all of those will be used. Right now, it's approved in people over 55. And I don't think there'll be any uh, problem in using the AstraZeneca. Nothing that we know now indicates that. But what we're saying to people in every case is that uh, their safety is uh, paramount uh, to public health officials. And so... Uh, you'd want people to have operate with an abundance of caution. And that's what's happened here.
1: There has been some criticism online in particular for Premier Horgan singling out younger people yesterday for, you know, causing more cases, needing them to do more. Do you agree with that assessment?
0: Uh, I think Premier Horgan was drawing attention to simply a fact. From the beginning of the pandemic, um, the younger people have uh, seen more cases of COVID-19. And obviously because the most vulnerable people are our elders. They're the most vulnerable to the most serious consequences of COVID-19. I mean, our elders, people with chronic diseases, et cetera. But what's happening now is that that, those numbers are going up. So the share of COVID-19 cases for people 20 to 39 has gone up in recent weeks uh, and gone up significantly. In addition to that, the variants are concerned. We are concerned that the impact of COVID-19 is greater. So, the, the, because of the variants of concern on people's health, so I think what Premier Horgan was delivering was a very clear message. I don't think we can be too nuanced about this. Young people need to keep this in mind: protect the ones that they love, their parents and their grandparents, and themselves. in In a very significant situation, we are so close in terms of what we're doing, but we're not. We have to live in the present, not the future. We're so close with vaccine reducing transmission of COVID nineteen and getting to a more normal place. But we're not there yet, and I think what Premier Horgan was doing was cutting through that and speaking directly to young people and saying, you are at risk, and the ones you love are at risk, and this is an important time.
1: What is it about the P1 variant in particular that worries you? I know that this is the source in Whistler that's causing so much concern. Why so much concern about that?
0: Well, uh, because uh, it's one thing to have uh, one variant, which is sometimes referred to as the UK variant, which we're seeing more in Fraser Health. Here, but having two causes much more concern for public health. Uh, Obviously, we don't know uh, as much about these variants. We're learning more every day, but the Brazilian variant, uh, the P1 variant, uh, has significant causes significant concerns in terms of both outcomes and speed of transmission. So, uh, this is a warning to all of us. And in that case, the P1 variant, the average, um, the median age of people with the P1 variant in DC is about twenty-seven. And this is another reason why um, people who are in that age cohort have to take care and to pay attention to this and help us with this. And I, I want to say this finally. I mean, this is about the Brazilian variant, but it's also about young people. Young people, because of yesterday's measures, pay a greater cost. And we know this, right? We know that young people are disproportionately servers in restaurants, right? And those are their jobs or are working at Whistler, for example, or working in fitness centres. We know this and we appreciate that and we appreciate what people have sacrificed and what they have lost. We're, but we're in an important period for the, in the pandemic. We have high levels of transmission and it would be a terrible thing for you or your family to contract COVID-19 and face those serious consequences at the end of this pandemic. So this is why we need to bear down. The Brazilian variant is one of the key reasons why.
1: Thank you very much for your time this morning. We appreciate that.
0: Any time, take care, Sydney. You too. Take that, care everyone.
1: That's Adrian Dix, the provincial health minister, talking about the variety of issues, including younger people of concern here with the P one variant circulating.